You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 um, as we continue in our series, Embracing the Supremacy of Jesus Christ. Up to this point, we've defined supremacy is that person or thing which in your mind or heart holds um, or surpasses everything else in status, power, and authority. It's that person or that thing that holds the position of prominence, preeminence, or highest importance in your heart and in your life. As we continue our series today, I want to pause on chapter 1, verse 18, and I want to uh, preach a title, or uh, preach a a message today entitled, The Supremacy of Jesus Christ Over the Church, Part 2. It says in chapter 1, verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he, Jesus Christ, might be preeminent. Look again at the beginning of the the verse, and he is the head of the body, the church. What I want to do today is I want to push pause on our series, and I want to dig deep into this idea of Jesus Christ as supreme over the church, as head over the church. You might be wondering why we've got three more amazing verses standing in front of us. Why won't we just move on? Well, I think if you were here last week, you noticed um, that something struck a nerve with me. If you weren't here last week, um, about halfway through my message, um, I stopped preaching. There was this long, silent pause, this really intense prayer, me crying, everybody feeling super awkward, (laughs) and this passioned plea for you to own the work of the ministry. And I think a lot of people, I got a lot of response this weekend. First of all, a ton of encouragement. Um, I cannot thank you enough for the encouragement that you guys have sent in email and letters and phone call and text messages. I think in my position, I get so accustomed to getting the grief and I rarely get a lot of encouragement. And so this week alone, things like this from the elders is life-giving to Miranda and I. Thank you for loving us. But I also think last week, um, though you were with me in spirit, you might have been a little confused as to what I was talking about and why that came up. So what I want to do today is hopefully offer a little bit more clarity around what I meant Um, a little bit more direction of how we can move forward, and I pray hope for the future of our church. Does that sound good to you? So I'm going to pray again. Father, now give us eyes to see what your word has to say, ears to hear your spirit speak, and God, a will to not only hear and see, but to act and move and decide. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin here. In the early 1900s, during the days of exploration, there was a man by the name of Ernest Shackleton. Um, Ernest Shackleton gathered, uh, who was an explorer, gathered 27 men for an expedition. 
Now, this was in the days before even the Titanic had set sail, to give you some context of history. He gathered 27 men on uh, an expedition to go on a journey on a boat called the Endurance. And their goal was to be the first group of men in history to reach the South Pole on the continent of Antarctica. On their journey down, they got stuck in an ice pack in what is known as the Weddell Sea, uh, just north of Antarctica. As their ship got stuck in the Weddell Sea, the ice pack continued to grow and become more and more intense until finally it crushed the ship and the crew, all 27 men, including Shackleton, were stuck. Now keep in mind in the early 1900s, there was no rescue. There was no GPS, there was no text messaging, um, there was no rescue crew. These men were utterly stuck. And in the worst conditions you could imagine, they lived on an ice shelf for 18 months, not land, in negative 20 to 40 degree temperatures, with little shelter, no ready food available. These men would huddle together at night just to keep warm, and they would have a tiny little tent that just to block the wind as they were camping on an iceberg. They would wake up, because their body heat would warm the ice, they would wake up in puddles of water. And then you can't dry your clothes. Incredibly difficult circumstances. Imagine that moment that Ernest Shackleton had when he realized that his crew was stuck. And the crushing weight of that question, how do I get these men home to their families? If you've ever been stuck in life, you know the weight of that question. How do I move forward? In 2011, Harvest Bible Chapel set sail. With 50 adults and some odd children, we planted a church with a vision to, in four to five years, plant another church. But if you've been with us for anything longer than maybe three to four years, you will understand that we as a church are stuck. We have predominantly three groups of people in our church. We have those who have been with us for about eight years. We have another small cluster of people who have been with us for about five or six. But then we have a large portion of people, a revolving door of people that stay for anywhere from one to three years. And that revolving door keeps revolving to where every three to four years, it almost feels like we have a new church. We are stuck. So the question that we have to ask, and we have to ask it at some point, is how do we get unstuck? Now, I think that we would all agree before we continue that we cannot and should not measure success by numbers. Great spot for an amen. Um, We have always been committed to a quality of discipleship over a quantity of disciples. We believe that if we focus on the quality of discipleship in our church, God will eventually, in his timing, take care of the quantity. But we also, I think, can agree that faithfulness is not just being committed to us for and no more. Also a great spot for an amen. 
because we believe that there's a mission that God has called us to as a church, and we as a body collectively are called to fulfill that mission of advancing the gospel together. So there are these two ditches that we can fall into, measuring success in a church based solely on numbers or being totally content with getting nowhere and just being stuck. What is the goal? The goal is that we would be a healthy church. That is what we desire to be. But knowing that healthy things grow, we understand then that if we aren't growing and moving over a long period of time, we have to inspect ourselves. What is wrong? What's not working? How do we address it? In the early 1900s, when Ernest Shackleton looked at his crew of 27 men and he faced impossible odds, he developed a plan. And that plan, over the next 18 months, carried these men from iceberg to iceberg to iceberg, literally fighting for their lives. Guys, as they would get off the boats, they had been paddling for 48 to 72 hours, would find a seal, cut it open, and stick their hands in to keep them from freezing. It's how hard they had to fight to stay alive. But they had a plan. And after 18 months, Ernest Shackleton got every man home to his bed, home to his wife, home to his kids. If we are going to, as a church, find a home, a building, we need a plan. Amen? And so, what I want to do today is from Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. I just want to build a framework very simply of what God's plan is for the church and what it needs to look like for us over the next three years. Now, my goal today is to give you an honest assessment of where we are at as a church. My goal is not to scold. My goal, I am not frustrated or angry. I am just, I hope you hear my heart when I say this. I'm simply presenting the facts as the elders see them. Okay? We got, we got to... Someone say preach. Okay. So let's do this. I want to ask, ask a couple of questions. Who are we, number one? Number two, what is our mission and vision as a church? And how do we accomplish it? And number three, how do we get there? Now point number one is simply who are we? If we don't know who we are then we will not know what we are required to do. Um, And so my goal here in this section is to help us to see what is our bullseye as a church, and are we hitting it or are we missing it? So as we look back at the text, we look at chapter 1, verse 18. We're just going to camp here, and we're going to dive deep into this verse. And he that is Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church. Now, as you look throughout Scripture, there's a lot of different ways in which God describes the church. And when we have crystal clear clarity about who we are, well, then we have crystal clear clarity and conviction about what we are required to do. The what's become easy when we know who we are. Throughout Scriptures, God has described the church as a bride. And when I say church, I mean us, right? The church is a we, not a, Right? Jesus Christ describes his church as a bride. Uh, That means that our total and unreserved, undivided 
devotion belongs, ought to belong to Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. We are an army. Jesus says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are to put on the full armor of God. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he says, um, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, implying that there are gates of a kingdom that we are to advance and to conquer. We are an army. We are also a garden. First Corinthians chapter 3, Apollos watered, Paul planted, God brought the increase. It implies that if we are not growing as a church, something just fundamentally is broken and wrong. And finally, we are described as a city on a hill. That is that God takes us, a people who have been rescued out of the concentration camp of sin and death and brought into the kingdom of light. We are a city set on a hill to shine brightly in a lost and dying world that is looking for clarity in the midst of darkness. That is who we are. It defines what we do. But the number one description of the church throughout all of Scripture is right here in this verse, verse 18, and he is the head of the body. The body. More than any other description of the church is this term, the body, which implies that every member of the church, if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you have been placed by God supernaturally into this thing called the church. You are a part of the church. You are either a toe or an ear or a finger or a hand or an eye. Every individual is a part of the whole. And the part does not exist to serve itself. The part exists to serve the whole. Now, this implies a couple of things for us that I want to really dig down on when it comes to understanding ourselves as a body. And the first thing is this, first of all, connectedness. The body is a connected entity. You remember that song, Them Bones, Them Bones? What is it? Dry Bones. bones. That's what it was. Dry Bones, Them Bones, Gonna Bone. How does it go? There it is, right there. The hip bone's connected to the thigh bone, the thigh bone's connected to the knee bone, the knee. You get the point. And what that implies is that a body, what, what, what happens to one part of the body needs to impact the whole, right? So as we talked about last week, if you, if you get a rock in your shoe, it's going to affect the whole thing. If, if you stub your toe, is that going to impact everything else? If you smack your thumb with a hammer, what is going to happen? Parts impact the whole, and the whole needs the parts. And this is what this means for us. Proximity to one another does not equal connectedness. We come to church on Sunday, we sit near each other, and we are close to each other, but that does not mean that we are connected genuinely, as this verse says, as a body. And here's what I mean by that. You may sit close to somebody, 
but you might be a thousand miles apart in terms of knowing who they are and them knowing you. How many of you are connected enough to know who in this church feels like they're ignored every week? They come here, they serve faithfully, and yet they feel like nobody notices me and nobody pays attention to me. How many of us are connected enough to know of any number of marriages that are struggling right now? How many of us are connected enough to know who can barely pay their rent right now? How many of us are connected enough to know who just lost a child? Or who is struggling with same-sex attraction and doesn't know what to do with it? You see, we may sit close to each other, but if we don't really know each other? Are we really a body? As the Bible describes. This is why we need mechanisms. For eight years, well, let me stick to the script so I don't get emotional. We need mechanisms to be connected. We need them. And this mechanism right here primarily is for the centrality of God's word. Sunday morning, the 500 years ago when the Protestant Reformation occurred, the reason why it happened is because this had lost its centrality in the church. And so the Protestants fought hard to make this, to bring the pulpit out of the side of the church that had been relegated all the way over here and brought it back so that the centrality of the church was rooted in the authority of God's word. But throughout the years, we have become so focused on the truth that we forgot the equally important aspect of the church, which requires connectedness. That's why... And Paul, when, when he wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter, I think, 1 or 2, he said, we didn't just share the word of God with you. We shared our lives with you. We, we knew you, and we were known by you. Now, here's the reality. If we just show up for Sunday morning church, and we give no effort to actually getting to know one another, are we being who we are in Christ. That's why we need mechanisms. We have mechanisms like uh, community events for us to get together and serve, a men's and women's events for us to get together and fellowship around the word of God, around the truth of God's word, but to actually have relationship. That's why especially we have small groups, a place where you can know and be known by other people. Secondly, if the body implies, first of all, connectedness, it also implies mutual ministry. I want you to hear these verses as I read them aloud. They're going to be from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And I want you to tell me if this sounds to you like Paul is describing a buffet line. Sizzler, Golden Corral, think of the cheapest, nastiest, 
Is that what, what Paul is describing here in this text? Okay, are you with me? Okay, listen to what he says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints to eat the best food possible at the most professional churches that offer the best programs on the face of the planet with the best preaching and the lights and the smoke and the awesomeness. And when you walk out, you just feel like, wow, man, I had a, I met with God. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For the building up of the body. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into Christ who is the head, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part, we say that again, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Does that sound like the sizzler? Golden Corral. No. A healthy church is made up of a group of people who have been gathered together by the gospel of Jesus Christ where everybody is committed to using their part to serve the whole. That is what a healthy body is. Sadly, too often the church is like a football game. How many of us are going to, are the Eagles playing today? Are, are they? I just heard, who are we playing today? Da- oh. oh, boy. I'm going to be watching TV today, and I don't even like watching football. That, that's great. Um, You see, the church oftentimes is too much like a football team, right? 22 players on the field in desperate need of exercise, surrounded by 22,000 people in the stands in desperate need. Wait, I said that wrong. 22 people on the field in desperate need of a break, watched by 22,000 people in desperate need of exercise. Now we got it. Let me give some examples. And this is just, as I've watched this occur over eight years of our ministry, I'm just laying out the facts as they are. Um, For instance, we have three road crew teams. And these road crew teams come in and they prepare this place and make it usable for the sake of the church. So they set up pipe and drape. They get the sound and the equipment. They get all of this here. They set up the children's ministry and get the parking lot ready and, and everything that goes into getting this ready. And it's about a hour and a half process about. And a while back, we had about 11 people split between three teams, which averages out to about three to four people, maybe. 
To have a healthy team that actually enjoys what they do, we need about eight to 10 per team. But we had three to four, which meant that we had about three to four people like Mike Tannis, who came in and has been faithfully doing this for years, coming in and not just working one month and then two months off, but you were coming in pretty much almost all the time. So we put a plea out to our people and we said, we need 30 people, 10 people per team. And we got the, do you remember the thermometer thing? And we started to fill that up and we got almost all the way to the top. We got 26. We didn't quite get 30, but we got 26. We were really close. And now we're already back down to about 15 between three teams. And the challenge is that that 15 isn't even equally spread out with the three teams. So it's not like five, five, and five. It's more like eight, seven, three, or four. And here's what that does. Because I know a lot of us, when we come into church, we, like, we look around and we think like, oh, this is a well-oiled machine. Things are going great. Everything's set up. It's ready to go. But you weren't here at 7.30 when TJ showed up and he only had one other person to help him set the whole thing up. And so TJ, multiple times, has been here setting up with maybe one other person, two or three other, and we've been trying to build his team. But those are some of the things that happen behind the scenes that are just... It's hard. Uh, we had one uh, road crew member, uh, Steve. He's a great guy. Got saved here. Got saved here. His eternal address went from separated from God to living with the king forever. And so he was so thankful, he just wanted to start serving on the road crew. But how many Sundays in a row where he would show up and there were only two to three people to help him? And he would be passed, and he would say this to me, and younger men, I don't mean to make you feel guilty. That's not my goal in saying this. But it's the reality. Steve, who was in his 50s, helped by other men who were in their 50s, passed by by multiple young men on Sunday mornings, and Steve would ask, why aren't they helping? Why aren't they pitching in? One day I got a letter from Steve, and it had the keys to the van, and a letter said, we're leaving. Please don't contact us. That was it. He just completely burned out. A body requires everybody pitching in. I think here's what has been happening for too long in our church. Is we ask people to own parts of the ministry, parts of the discipleship making process. And we say, hey, would you carry this? Okay. I can't do this anymore. This is too much. All the while, Bevan Greiner, 
and Betz Griner in the back have been for eight years faithfully carrying the ministry, this is really heavy, of sound and hospitality and a constant rotation of people. And, and the guys that have stepped up, I'm so thankful for. But how long am I going to be able to hold this? It's already getting really heavy. Can I do this indefinitely? Can, I'm asking, can I do this indefinitely? Wouldn't it make way more sense if all of us just carried this much? Would this be sustainable? It would. And, and it's not too much, right? I mean, I can... But the problem is that the state of affairs is we have a few people doing this. Too much of this. And we burn through good people who get saved in our ministry. We never see them again because they can't keep carrying the load. Now, some would say, Matt, I'm in a season. I can't carry much weight. And fully recognizing that there are seasons where we can't carry a ton. Amen? There are seasons of life. As I look at the Jorns and, and I look at the health things that they are battling through, as I keep hearing that amen from Ryan in the back, wherever he is, and knowing all the health complications that you guys are battling and all the things that you are going through. And yet, as I see the level of commitment that you give week in and week out, I think there's a lot of people, we go through seasons where we can't. But I'm just going to say it. I wonder how many of us from time to time think we're in a season where we can't when we really have an attitude that we won't. I won't do it. I don't want to. For a church to be healthy, to be a healthy body requires two things. We must be connected. We must have relationships. And that means moving forward for us. If we're going to have a future as a church, we have to prioritize each other. The reality is it's uncomfortable. It's difficult. You're not going to always get along. You're going to bump into each other. You're going to step on each other's toes. But isn't that the reality of church? And don't we have the gospel that can mitigate all of that and help us solve it all and to actually become a family? That's why we are unique. We're not a bar. We're not cheers. We're not um, some social club. We are those who have been redeemed out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son, the kingdom of light. And we do that by relating to each other and being connected to each other and knowing each other, even when we have nothing in common, we still love each other. And secondly, we need to have ownership. Every part, serving the whole, owning the work. And here's the question. Do we believe in our heart with every ounce of our being that God 
worthy of our efforts. Because if we don't believe that, what are we doing here? Why are we putting forth the effort to try to plant a church in one of the hardest areas to do it, to get a building in one of the places we have no business hoping for a building, unless God is worthy, unless Christ is worthy, do we really believe that it's worth it? Do we really believe that lost people are going to die and be separated from God for eternity? Do we really believe that? Because if we don't believe that, then what are we doing here but just self-help seminars? Ultimately, at the end of the day, this is to equip us to go out and do that, right? Has God called us here to this upper Marion area? If we believe that these things are true, then what are we going to do about it as a church? Father, I pray, God, that you would burden us to be the body and not content with American church-as-usual consumerism, but on-fire ownership and connectedness as a body. In Jesus' name, I pray. So the second question that I want to ask is this. Well, okay, so what is the vision and the mission of the church? In fact, I was sitting down with a friend this week, and he asked, well, what is the vision and the mission of the church? Two verses that are really helpful for this are 1 Corinthians 10.31 and Matthew uh, 28.19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatsoever you do, you do all to the glory of God, right? And Matthew uh, 28, 19, and 20 called the pretty good commission, right? What's it called? Great commission, all right. Go therefore and do what? Make disciples. So if vision describes where we're going, okay, and we're going to try to biblically define that, not like culturally define it, Where are we going? Mission describes what are we doing. Here's what we have to understand. Vision has to flow out of mission. Because if it gets the other way around and vision dictates mission, it gets unbiblical fast. So what is the mission of our church? To glorify God by making disciples. What do we do? We glorify God. How do we do it? By making disciples. That is the mission of the church. That is what we are striving to do week in and week out with every event that we have, with every collection of people that get together. What are we trying to accomplish at some end, at some way, we are trying to glorify God by making disciples. But what does that mean? You ever wonder, what does it mean to glorify God? It means this, put them on display in your life. You ever go shopping? Go shopping at the mall? You go window shopping? Ladies, guys, don't lie to me. I know you do it too. You go to Best Buy and do some window shopping. And what do they do? They, they put their most important, most valuable items where? Right at the front. They shove it right up to the front of the window. 
Best Buy puts it like right up in front of you as, as soon as you walk in uh, to the store. Their most valuable, their most important things that they're trying to get into your hands because they want you to have it. Maybe that's giving them a lot of credit in terms of the um, benevolence of their hearts. But the point is, they, they shove the most important stuff to the front and they put it on display. What does it mean to glorify God? It means to put him on display in your life, that you put him, you shove him to the front so that when people look into your life and they see you and what you care about and what you value and what you prioritize in life and what you say yes to and what you say no to, they clearly see God on display, glorified, lifted high, magnified in your life as the highest importance in your life, supreme over all. When we talk about this idea of supremacy of Jesus, that's what it means is to glorify him and magnify him so that people can clearly see in your life, in every decision that you make, that Jesus Christ is number one. And we show that to the world as we laugh, as we cry, as we celebrate, as we mourn, as we conquer, as we struggle, what is truly most glorious to us. The mission of our church is to glorify God and by how do we do that, making disciples. Helping lost people who don't know Jesus get saved. Saved people get matured and mature people multiplying in this life. Do you see it? Healthy things what? Grow. But if I were to put a finer point on what we're trying to do as a church, if we're trying to glorify God by putting Jesus Christ at the front of the window and showing and displaying, ultimately, what does it mean to make a disciple? It means to this, do this, to help people wake up to the joy of living for the glory of God alone. That is a disciple that is alert, alive, and enthusiastic for living for the glory of Jesus Christ alone. That they are willing to sacrifice everything else in their life for the glory of Jesus Christ because he's worth it. Because he's worth it. Because he's worth it. And that we have rejected the delusion of the American dream. The American dream that battles against your soul every day that tells you to give your life to the last 15 to 10 to 15 years of your life so that you can live out some pathetic utopia of existence when you're fighting just to stay alive. Ditch the American dream and give your life to the eternal kingdom of God. Storing up treasures in heaven for the glory of God. By being willing to share the love of Jesus at work at the expense of your job. If it would mean bringing another person out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But we're so scared of losing out on the American dream that we're not investing in the eternal kingdom. And so the goal of the church is to help wake us up to living for the glory of God because he is worth it. And if our mission is to wake up Christians from the delusion of the American dream to living for the glory of God, 
then our vision has to flow out of that. Is that a good mission to have as a church? Okay. We, we need to be behind this because this is like everything that we do, right? So are we agreed this is a good mission? Okay. This is what we ought to be doing, right? So then where are we going if this is what we're doing? Okay. Where are we going? Long-term, short-term. I think there's two elements to vision. Long-term vision, short-term vision. Where are we going? And why do we feel convicted that we should go there and not stay where we are comfortably right now? Because like, we have to be convicted that where we are right now pales in comparison to what God is calling us to out there. And we have to be willing to sacrifice to get there to accomplish it. So where are we going? Well, we began this church with a desire to be a church planning church. Why? Because we believe that the church is the hope of the world. God makes his appeal to sinners through the church. Do you believe that? That God reconciles people through the advance of the gospel that comes through the church, the local church. If we want to advance the gospel into a lost and dying world, then we do it most effectively by planting new churches as we grow. That has been our goal. That has been our vision since the beginning is to be a church planting church, not to build our own kingdom. Not to build our own kingdom. We're not going to be a campus church where I'm going to be uh, zoomed in on the screen so that everybody can look at my ugly mug and hear my horrible, emotionally driven sermons. We want to plant churches with local autonomous governing bodies with pastors who have a passion for the community that they're actually in to reach them. Now, that's the long-term vision, that we would have a building that we can create a community center so we can serve our community and, and we can train other pastors to go out and plant churches to be kingdom outposts in their areas. That's the long term. But between right now, right, a humble group of people here in um, Upper Marion Middle School to that day when we're planting all of these churches in the area, right, all over the Philadelphia area, maybe in the city or up towards Sellersville or out toward Coatstown or Downingtown or, am I, am I getting it? Coatsville. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm not quite getting it there. Um, what about between then and now? Well, we have to have a short-term vision. I think part of the problem that we've had as a church for the past eight years is that we've had a big grand BHAG, big hairy audacious goal. But we haven't had, we have not had a vision for the community that God put us in. God has deeply convicted me of this fact that when we moved into King of Prussia, instead of coming to this community to love and serve this community and advance the gospel here, we simply used king of Russia to be a platform to launch our thing. And we proved that year after year after year with very little effort in trying to reach our community. 
And so that's where God has been convicting us as leaders, the elder board level, that we have not been the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in the upper Marian area. And so short term, what is our vision? It's very biblical to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in the community he planted us in. And some of us will say, well, Pastor Matt, I don't come from this community. I drive 30 minutes to get here. Well, you've got to pick a community. This is where you go to church. Why not this one? And serve the one that you're in. Amen? Can you serve both? Can we? Okay. So how do we do that? Number one, we need to, how do we short-term be the hands and feet of Jesus in this community and our communities? Number one, we have to proclaim Jesus. We've got to proclaim Jesus. If we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, the only life, if he is the only way to God the Father, if he is the only way to truly be born again, then we have to be a people committed to proclaiming the centrality of Jesus Christ and him alone. We have to be committed to that. But secondly, we have to be committed to adorning Jesus Christ. Do you know what I mean when I say that? We proclaim Jesus, I think, pretty faithfully as a church, but we need to grow, right? Amen? Now, a lot of people out there that are doing an amazing job, I look at Barry and, uh, 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 Barry and Janice Shanebrook over here, and, and the way that God has used you guys to advance the gospel is unbelievable. I look at families like you guys, and I think God is doing a thing in our church. But we need to put on the gospel as well. And that means we need to be the functional hands of feet in visible ways in our community. So it's not just us talking about the gospel. It's us living the gospel out in front of people. That means sacrificing and serving and loving and caring and being present. God didn't just preach a, hev- a, a, a sermon from heaven telling us, hey, repent, y'all sinners, Y'all messed up, okay? Believe it. He sent his son. He incarnated the gospel and sent Jesus into the world. And we need to incarnate the gospel in our community so that people can actually see it in action in our lives. This is why we do community days. This is why we do Operation Christmas Child. This is why we do food pantry. This is why we do trunk or treat, is to incarnate the gospel The gospel is not always just saying it. A lot of the times the gospel is showing it by taking an interest in our community. Now we can either take a position of hostility toward our community or we can take a position of loving generosity. Which one do you want to take? That means we need more help. Trunk or treats coming up, by the way. And we've got candy coming in, which is awesome. And we're going to be handing out gospel tracts with every person that comes through. They're going to hear the gospel. We need our community to see the gospel in action. We need your help to do that. Short term, we need to adorn. We need to proclaim. That's how we win Upper Marion to Jesus. So how do we get there? What is the plan? Shackleton had a plan. We need to have a plan. Is planning biblical? It's funny because in Christianity, that's kind of like a 
I'm not sure if we're supposed to plan for the future because Jesus could come back at any minute. So am I really supposed to have a 401k? Is planning biblical? Yes. Prayerful planning. Committed to the Lord is biblical. Proverbs 16 verse 3 says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans might be established. What does it say? Exactly. God does not condemn planning. He does condemn prayerless planning. So we have thoroughly prayed. So go ahead and take that strategic plan out. Go ahead and put it in your hand. If you don't have one, I can throw one to you. I got two. I give one away. Who wants one? Who needs one? Oh, we got more in the back. Oh, that's what Matt. I thought the, the hand was for me to throw one to you, Eric. I'm like, that's not going to get back there. You want one? I'll, I'll be, oh, we were so close. Okay. You got it. Awesome. So the strategic plan, what is this? Is this the holy grail? Is, are these stone tablets handed down from heaven? Do this. No, no, not at all. It's, it's, it's a plan. That's all it is. But it's a plan that's been prayed over pretty extensively for several years. In 2017, we sent an extensive survey to our church. We tried to get the wisdom of our congregation because we believe Proverbs 15 verse 22 says that there's in the multitude of counsel, there is wisdom. And we asked what is working in our church, what's not working, what are your senses not. Um, we are, as a church, elder-led, congregationally accountable So we want to be accountable to our congregation. How are we doing? Where are we strong? Where are we weak? What do we need to work on? In 2018, we came together with a strategic plan. But in 2019, we revived it or or revised it. And why? Because we realized we had a long-term plan, but no short-term. We had no short-term plan. Between the now, right now, and the church plan in the future, we realized that we had overlooked our own community. We were proclaiming we weren't adorning. And so we have revised. So as you open this up, as you look at all of these terms, can I borrow that one more time as you draw on each other? That's interesting. I like that. Gotcha. (laughs) No, that's good. As we worship, and here's, here's what we need to do. We need to read this, and we need to pray over it, and we need to respond to it. Um, the purpose, why we're giving you this vision and mission, the difference between the two, our mission, our vision, what are we trying to become? How do we get there? Steps one, two, and three, how to read this book. All of this information is important for you to read through. But when it comes to what we are valuing and what we are putting our attention on, we are focused on the word of God. That is our central focus as a church, and it will always be as long as I am here. You will have to drag my dead body out of this congregation before we stop allowing the word of God to be the central piece of our entire ministry. This will never change. But we need more people teaching it. We need more. Welcome. Congregation, I, I love our church, and I love what God is doing here. Um, but it is, it is painful when I see visitors come, and they show up 10 minutes early, and there's five people in here, and nobody says hi to them. 
It happens more than you might think. We need to be a welcoming church, a people who come early and ready to receive the visitors who are coming to us as gospel opportunities to win someone to Christ. I mean, if we want to share the gospel, if we want to share Jesus, it doesn't get any easier than the visitor that comes into our place, right? This is where it, it doesn't get any easier. Welcome, worship. I'm so thankful for Dalton and his team. You guys... You hold high our king in worship every Sunday. Thank you. But we need more. We need more leaders. Walking, Harvest Kids. I'm so thankful for Amanda Pratt and all the effort that she puts into serving our kids and raising up the next generation of followers of Christ and leaders of the church. Aren't you thankful for Amanda? She's all the way in the back serving our kids right now, so hopefully she heard us clapping for her. And Amanda, if you hear us right now, uh, later on on the uh, podcast, we are thankful for you. But we need more help. We need more people willing to invest in kids. And some people might say, well, I don't have the spiritual gift of children's ministry. Oh, it's not a spiritual gift. Okay. I miss that. We just need people who are willing to be bodies, be present with kids, wipe noses, hug when they cry. Amen? Small groups. I'm so thankful for the six families that are leading our small groups. Ryan Jordan is my a small group leader and his faithfulness, him and Jess, and to be there every Sunday night when I know the weight of responsibility they carry. There are weeks where Ryan is leading our small group on Sunday, teaching till 7 or 8 o'clock on Monday, elders meeting on Tuesday from 6.30 to 9, and teaching till 7 or 8 on Wednesday. Four nights in a row where he is not with his family, two of them committed to serving this church. We need more like him. That would be a great spot to say thank you for him. (laughs) Prayer impact. Church, what we are in prayer, we are and we are nothing more. Our dependence, our strength, any progress that we will make as a church will only come through prayer. I'm going to take a few extra minutes here, and y'all are going to sit and listen. All right? Actually, would you please listen to me as I finish this? Is that all right? We need to become a church of prayer. We meet at 9.20 in the back in the children's ministry wing. I pine for the day when Larry and Barb come to me. Well, actually, I'm usually back there, so I'm with you guys. And we have standing room only because so many people have come to pray for the future of our church. That's how we're going to go into our future is through prayer. That's how we advance is on our knees. Wealth, we will continue to be financially, hold high our value of financial integrity. I just want to say this. You guys have done a great job of giving this year. I have nothing else to say. If you are new to the church, that's not what we're looking for. 
but it is a form of worship for those who call this home. Witness and outreach. How are we doing there? If I were to ask you, this year in 2019, have you invited someone to church to come with you? And number two, have you shared your faith and spoken the name of Jesus into anybody else's life? How would we do? We've got to grow in this. And finally, work. That's what we talked about in ownership. So church, here's what I want to do is I want to lay this in your hands and I want you to just prayerfully ask the Lord what he would have you to do. I leave this message with no expectations of you. I'm not waiting for you to come to me. I've missed it, Pastor Matt. I just plug me in and blah, blah. I'm not waiting for that. This is between you and God. But here's the thing. I believe that the church is God's plan A. And there is no plan B. We are the hands and feet, the body of Jesus Christ in this world right now. That's why I feel so strongly about this. And this is why you should feel so strongly about this as well. God made the church the hope of the world. We stand between sinners and a holy God, and God makes his appeal through us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Like a Shackleton, we have a plan. But a plan's only as good, it's only good if we execute, right? It's only good if we take this seriously, that we are the body, the body of Christ, that we have been given a mission that is worthy of giving our greatest efforts to. Father, we love you so much. You are so kind, so patient, so gentle with us. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, Thank you for giving us everything. Holding back nothing. So Father, we can, you have not asked us to repay you. We don't owe you anything. Yet at the same time, you have called us to give up everything. So Father, I pray God, if if we're going to be a church if we're going to be a church where people can truly find you then God we we need to make some adjustments and so father we just humbly humbly come before you and ask God that you would work in our hearts that you will galvanize our passion for what Christ has called us to. So that you will be glorified. Sinners will be saved. Lives will be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.